Hello, welcome to Eyes for Years, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder, these podcasts are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose things on anybody's eyes. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? This week, we are going back to some examination basics uh, with a discussion on hyphemas. Keeping in mind that it's just August and that there are a bunch of newly minted PGY2s out there. Congratulations for starting things. And we tried to include a lot of other kind of high yield stuff and stuff for border view and OCAPs for folks that aren't just starting to. So hopefully, you know, everyone can find this episode about IFEMA useful. Yeah, on that subject, you know, we'll take a little bit of time because uh, just to chat and catch up a little bit, it's a new time for Ben and I also. As, uh, and it's another academic year, but we also moved around the country a bit and shifted into slightly new roles also, right, Ben? Yeah. We, we did it. We like <laughs> This is our first recording since graduating. I graduated residency and Andrew gradu- graduated uh, fellowship. It, how, how is being faculty now? It's, uh, it's so far still more orientation, but uh, the folks here at the University of Iowa, where I'm privileged and humbled to be, uh, are great. Everybody's real friendly. A lot of friendly faces. It's just I'm still getting used to the whole first name thing for... Uh, other attendings, which oh, yeah, also I, is weird to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, our program director insisted I call her by her first name. Like, that, you know, it was like the week that we were graduating. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Yeah, I she don't... kept saying, call me Jess. <laughs> and I was like, I, I'm not doing that. Dr. Chow. <laughs> I have <Wait>. no way. <laughs> oh, she's never offered that to me, Dr. Chow. Oh, no. Although it's not like I would do it diff- any differently. She's going to be yeah. Dr. Chow forever. Yeah, no. I, I kind of forget. I don't even know if she goes by jazz or Jessica or what. I still call my piano teacher from grade school, Mrs. Beecher. I can't help it. Anyway. There's no way around it. Um, yeah, and you, Ben, moved over to University of Michigan, right? I How's, am, yeah. How is Ann Arbor? Ann Arbor is lovely. I haven't explored any of it because of a global pandemic that happened to be going on. <laughs> but um, so far, it's lovely. The views from the top of the tower are very nice. And I'm like honored and privileged to be here. It's a great fellowship so far. Well, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the, our experiences so far, and maybe we haven't done a Beyond the Scope episode for a while yet, huh? Mm-mm. But, uh, yeah. Let's talk about blood. Let's talk about hyphema. Right. So, Ben, Wait, what, what is, is a hyphema? Yeah, ah. you tell me. You're the glaucoma guy. I don't know. Shucks. Um, hyphema is just bleeding in the anterior chamber. Um, mm-hmm. It'll come usually from the thing that's most vascular there, which is typically the iris if something's gone wrong with it. Uh, and usually the thing that's gone on wrong the vast majority of the time is blunt force trauma. Yeah, yeah. This is like the main reason I don't exercise because I've seen like so many exercise bands, like, you know, slip off someone's foot or whatever and then hit them in the face hit them in the eye and cause yeah. a hyphema. And we just did, like we were talking about, another kind of move across many states. Did you use a bungee cord <laughs> at any point in your movement? No, no, my fear is too great for bungee cords. Right? Like, I actually did not want to do it because of this. Like, mm-hmm. I never want to touch a bungee cord again because we, as you're alluding to, have seen way too many of those folks with bungee cord hyphemas show up to the emergency room. Yeah, I'd rather just all my stuff break than go anywhere near an elastic object. And yeah, yeah that, but that's about it, right, Andrew? The causes is blunt force trauma. 
there's a, you got a whole little vitamin thing, right? Your vitamin C mnemonic again for yeah. a differential. Yeah. You want to so, do that? Uh, yeah, fine. So <laughs> there's, so for people who are new to this podcast, the way that we like to think about differentials is one, think about it anatomically. So where is the, um, you know, where, where is the problem and think about everything in the area that can cause a problem. But hyphemas are pretty well defined as bleeding in the interior chamber. Once you've identified location, then we like to do a systems-based approach. And I think everyone in med school learned a different systems-based mnemonic. The one that we like here is vitamin C. Um, and, you know, even though I think most of us learn that in the context of internal medicine, it's really useful. And it should be useful in any medical subspecialty, including ophthalmology. So let's go through vitamin C for hyphemas. What are vascular cause? Well, maybe I should do this one. <laughs> no, no, no. So let's start with because sure. it's like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's yeah, differentiate yeah. what vascular means in this case from just yeah. frank bleeding, right? You can have technically you get popped in the eye with a bungee cord and it breaks lots of virus blood vessels. Technically, that's vascular, but that's not what we're talking about here, right? Let's not. Yeah, we're that. thinking more of like an innate vasculopathy that a patient has. Mm-hmm. So, Though, and you know, you can group these things however you want. This is just how we chose to group it for this episode. But in terms of vascular causes, we mean things like diabetic retinopathy or ocular ischemic syndrome, things that can cause macro and microvascular ischemia to the eye. And the reason that can cause a hyphema is it can lead to increased VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, which leads to neovascularization, which can then go to the iris and you know, the destiny, once it goes to the iris, is either it goes away with some treatment or it goes to the angle and causes neovascular glaucoma, or it can also bleed, causing a hyphema with, you know, it could be minimal trauma because remember, you know, as a little bit of an aside, you remember neovascular vessels are are very weak and flimsy. And they, that's compared to the natural iris blood vessels that uniquely out of the whole body, have a layer of hyaline around it. The reason it has that is so that it doesn't, you know, crush or deform or become ischemic when the iris um, dilates and constricts. So iris blood vessels have a lot of support, but neovascular blood vessels definitely do not and are easy to bleed. So that's the V cause. What about I, Andrew? It's a little related, but uh, I would be in general for a vitamin C. That's the infectious or, well, inflammatory also, but... In this case, mm-hmm. we'll say they're both sort of even infection or inflammation related to HSV or VZV as potential causes for high fever. How would those lead to blood in the eye? Um, again, neovascularization downstream of natural history of those viruses. They do almost a ton. Um, anything, there's almost, almost any time there's something going on wonky in the eye. You want to implicate HSV or VZV or something. Right. The next in the vitamin C is T traumatic, which you just covered. And then after that is A autoimmune, which, you know, kind of goes with inflammatory. So the only kind of special one after that is behind HSV, VZV is Fuchs, uh, heterochromic iridocyclitis. You know, we covered Fuchs in uh, a recent episode, so we won't go too much more into it. Uh, it can cause new vascularization, but it more classically causes Amsler sign, which can cause hyphema when one does like a paracentesis into an eye because um, of reasons that we won't do another episode. But just keep in mind, keep Fuchs in the differential, though, that's kind of a lot less likely to cause hyphema. 
And then, you know, rarely other inflammatory conditions can cause uh, neovascularization of the iris as well. You know, parsponitis can cause some neovascularization that may be able to migrate to the iris as well as, you know, other vasculitides that can cause ischemia. So keep those in the back of your mind, especially it's motivation to do a thorough exam to look for causes of hyphema if it's not obvious. And then M, there's, I mean, metabolic, you can kind of count in with diabetic retinopathy, but uh, we don't have anything specific for metabolic. Then there's iatrogenic. Andrew, as a recently graduated anterior segment surgical fellow, what uh, iatrogenic causes can there be for hyphema? I feel personally attacked. Are you no, <laughs> no, no. I'm saying that you are the guy who fixes these things. You fix not, not, and potentially also the guy who caused them, as these could be from post-laser or surgical iris injury. Uh, and anterior segment surgeons, you ought to watch out for your FACO tip because you can definitely go at the iris a little bit. Ugg syndrome can do this also, of course, with uh, an IOL that might not be all the way in the capsular bag, might have a haptic popped out and rubbing up against the posterior surface of the iris. That would spread a lot of pigment around. If it rubbed hard enough, it could also violate a blood vessel, thereby this sort of being kind of mini trauma as well in categorization. What does Ugg stand for for our friends who are new? The use is for uveitis. The G for glaucoma, and the H is the title of this episode, hyphema. Dope. I felt like Elma uh, just then. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's not uncommon to have some type of bleeding after, during um, the, the, an LPI, laser peripheral urodotomy. Yeah, so just keep in mind, you know, yeah, um, you know, that's just something... You know, if you're early on and you're about to do some of your first LPIs, that's something to really consider and think about and why a lot of people use things like argon laser before doing their uh, LPI to try to ablate those blood vessels so you don't bleed them when you yag them. There is... And then there's... Like yeah, a, no, go. No, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. The... Where are we in vitamin C? It's uh, N now. N is in Nancy, right? Or N yeah. also is in... Neoplastic. Yeah, you don't have to say N is in Nancy. It's in the mod. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> N is in neoplastic. There you yeah. go, boys. Now we're really in Sesame Street. Um, yeah. Anytime you see a hyphema and it's not from trauma, really, you have to kind of get your dukes up that it's something more exotic. The most exotic, of course, is this category, neoplasm. Most of the time, you can rule out if it's an adult, retinoblastoma, of course. Uh, but if it's a chip, if it's a kid and they've got a hyphema and they did part being just a kid knocking themselves around, really look out for retinoblastoma. But ocular melanoma can pop up for anybody too, basically anywhere in the eye, including just behind the iris. So really, and you have to be concerned because any kind of oncologic growth is going to have a lot of vascular abnormalities, kind of feeding that growth. And those can cause the tumor's area to bleed, especially if it's around that very vascular iris again. And uh, one other weird thing, so long as we're still in N for neoplasms, uh, you can have a masquerade syndrome secondary to the leukemia, actually. And of the many things that leukemia can kind of mimic in this masquerade syndrome is it can actually produce a hyphema also. It could also pop up as a hypopion it can do all sorts of weird things um maybe we should have a we we probably have a field day then if we did a whole episode on the on masquerade syndromes 
Yeah, we had to pick uh, and it'd like be specific masks. Super confusing because you know, like this looks like that versus that looks like this. But um, consider too, like most of the time, you're, when you see hyphema, it's obvious it's trauma. But if it's not trauma, there are some weird, creepy, crawly things you have to be careful of. Leukemia being one of them. So definitely keep in mind there's a possibility of someone having something very dangerous that presents as hyphema. It could just present as hyphema. And the last, so also pretty um, exotic thing is for C congenital is a juvenile xanthogranuloma. So that's a xanthogranuloma. There's a couple of different types of them. This one can show up in the eye uh, and it um, presents as these kind of yellowish nodule on the iris. It can spontaneously bleed. It's just one of those things that can just bleed um, with either minimal trauma or even no trauma. Okay. So I guess it wasn't just trauma that causes hyphema. Okay. Well, Andrew, can you tell us about how one, uh, you know, let's pretend I just take a call, see a patient with hy- who, you know, I get a call, hey, I think they have hyphema. What do I do on my examination to evaluate the hyphema? Yeah, first you're going to want to Check their vision, of course. If that depth and height of that hyphema is not obscuring the pupil, then they might actually be able to see stuff. The reason I really bring this up is those floating red blood cells might not have actually layered out yet, especially if they're coming in hot right from the ED and the thing, the event or the injury just happened to them, right? You could have a microhyphema in that case, and they could eventually, if you gave them a couple hours for it to settle down, they could actually have good vision. But the second you try to measure their visual acuity while they still have a microhyphema, all those red blood cells floating around, I've found that their visual acuity really sucks with a microhyphema. It's a lot worse than, you know, wait a couple of hours, wait, come back to them and the hyphema's layered out, turn from a microhyphema, do an actual layered out hyphema. And their acuity usually is a lot better by then. Hmm. Interesting. So another situation that can arise where the examination is really important is you, you maybe you see someone with a you know fresh injury and you know they got blood force trauma to the eye and you're seeing cell in the anterior chamber and you're trying to tell is it white cell because it could be traumatic iritis or is it red cell which could be um, hyphema or, or microhyphema. So and. You know, just looking at them straight on or even with your light askew to the side, it's hard to tell. So one trick you can use to tell between white cell and red cell, and even to differentiate between the two, because you could have a mix, is to focus your light beam so you can see those cells and then switch to the red free filter. That's usually the little, it's going to be like a little green dot when you, um, on the top of the slit lamp, the thing that you can kind of flip over to different filters. So switch over to the red free filter. What that will do is block out anything that's red, you, you know, that you're seeing at your slit lamp. So if the cells you're seeing go away with the red free filter, then they're white cells. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I had to think about to make sure that was correct. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> And if they go away, then they're red cells. So that's a pretty, you know, um, simple way. And sometimes some will go away and some won't. And that's, you know, so you can kind of flip back and forth to try to see like, oh, is it 50-50 or, or whatnot? Um, you know, in some cases, this can be quite useful. A lot of cases, it's not because if someone has uh, high, enough trauma to cause hyphema, they usually also have traumatic iritis. But, um, you know, if that's a question that comes up in clinic, that's something that you can use to help you out. 
And then, you know, just to reemphasize, Andrew mentioned measuring the height of a hyphema. That's something that I would just instinctively do, just like when you measure the size of a corneal ulcer, because measuring that height is critical to making sure that a hyphema is resolving appropriately. You know, if you just were looking at it and your colleague looks at it the next day and they say it's like, oh, it's a small hyphema or it's below the pupil, you're not, you can't really tell is it getting better or is it possibly getting worse from a rebleed or something. So always measure the height of the hyphema. It's something that's very easy to just forget when you're attending ask you later, like, oh, hey, is it three millimeters or four millimeters today? So definitely measure that. Andrew, so this one time I saw a patient with hyphema, but they also had a lot of white stuff kind of mixed in with the hyphema. What was going on there? That didn't make any sense. Uh, did your patient, was it like an inflammatory thing or did they, were they hit in the eye? They weren't hit in the eye. They just kind of came with it. It was very weird. Yeah, you're talking about like a candy cane hyphema, right? Oh, that's tasty. What is that? Um, um, it's actually pretty uncommon, but it does have more, uh, it pops up more often if you've got an infectious etiology on your hand with usually like a HSV situation. And it's basically neutrophils, polymorphism, what a PMNs. All these inflammatory things, basically, it's a mixture of a hypopion and a hyphema. But the hypopion stuff, all that purulent, uh, I'm sorry, not purulent, all that uh, neutrophilic, immunologic stuff, basically the white cells and the red cells are mixed in together, but they have slightly different densities. So you don't just get something that's pinkish. uh, You actually get different layers like uh, tiramisu. Okay. So yeah, so if you ever see that, then definitely like, because maybe they had minor trauma, but like if you see a candy cane hyphema, that's not just traumatic, you know? So I could keep it like definitely assess the quality of a hyphema. Okay, here's the eternal question. Do you go neo someone who just had a hyphema? Uh, Depends how stringent your glaucoma boss is. Uh (laughs) But the traditional teaching, no. So so, yeah, you're a glaucoma boss. You tell us. I would You're glaucoma say boss now. it's okay. I I would prefer that you not. And why? And what's the motivation behind not doing a gonio? So imagine that you know somebody was popped in the eye and their vessels are all broken in the iris and they're bleeding like heck. But by the time they get to you, the act of bleeding has stopped. And uh, why is that? Because you know the coagulation cascade, all the stuff that will temporarily seal that bleed, has temporarily clotted it off. In the form of a clot. But now if you introduce some like manipulation and actual pressure, you might be able to get away with very gentle gonioscopy, but uh, you know, I wouldn't expect you to be that gentle necessarily if you're trying it out in the first couple of years. So you might actually dislodge whatever clot has prevented or has kept it from bleeding so much, right? And I'll tell you, this is how delicate that stuff is in the first couple of hours. We, uh, in the last couple of months, as a covering trauma call person, we took a guy who had a traumatic hyphema that I wasn't sure if they also had had an occult globe rupture to the OR, just mainly for like an exploration, make sure he didn't have a popped open ruptured globe. And in the meantime, I was like, you know, let's try washing out some of this hyphema in the anterior chamber while we're here. And didn't end up having a ruptured globe, thankfully. So that's why we could direct our attention to that part. And I swear, we kind of just made it worse, right? It was too fresh. So as soon as we started, you know, draining some of the blood, what was a static situation, just stagnant blood in the AC, 
started like rebleeding again. I was like, well, okay, let's leave this alone, we'll close up and let it heal naturally and for the bleed for the blood to clear. Sorry, there's a motorcycle enthusiast somewhere. Um, so yeah, this sort of thing, if it's not actively bleeding, you don't really want to go back in there and mess with it too much in the early days of the, of the trauma. Once it's all more stable, you can go in and check that out. The only reason I'm kind of, you know, a little hesitant is we are, we do have other things on our differential. If there's a spontaneous hyphema, you know, what else could be causing that? And a lot of the times the things Ben, you were talking about earlier, with neovascularization, if it's really coming from something like OIS or PDR with a possibility that maybe that what this person really needs is, you know, an inter intravitreal anti-VEGF injection, you would really like to know if there's any kind of neovascularization of the ankle there. But save that probably for your spontaneous hyphemas, the ones that come to you and there's not an obvious traumatic reason because those guys can bleed on you quite a bit, pretty vigorously. And why is that a problem then, to have an active, blood, uh, active bleed on your hands that's you know, not quiet anymore? Because of the pressure might go high? Is that bad? Uh, yeah. The uh, pressure, even if you like discount. <laughs> I know pressure is bad. Uh, I know we love our, our pressure uh, drops. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. This does not reflect on our residency training at, at Yale University. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. And so before we go in more into pressure and pressure management, which is going to kind of finish off this episode, um, one thing to consider that I alluded to before is whether the source is truly the anterior chamber. All credit to my brilliant co-fellow, um, Dr. Leslie Everett. We had a patient who had a um, retinal detachment. And then, you know, it was Mac off, so we were planning on uh, do, taking them into the OR the next week. But then they came back to the emergency room later, and they had a hyphema. And... We were like, what the heck, you know, and that vitamin C thing, retinal attachment was not on the, is not, you know, in the differential that we had before. So like, did he have like a separate process that's going on? Did he have neovascularization, et cetera, et cetera? Well, she very cleverly figured out that the patient actually had a vitreous hemorrhage. And because, um, this guy, he had some like trauma in the past, um, you know, like blood force trauma to the eye in the past, um, the zonules were not all there so that allowed some of the vitreous hemorrhage to transmit to the anterior chamber and that's how they got the hyphema. So basically the point of that is when you see a hyphema, don't only think like, okay, like this is definitely coming from the iris. I'm going to look at the hyphema, measure the cell and hyphema size and pressure and go home. You know, definitely always have a differential when you're coming into a case and don't assume anything because we could have just as easily presented with hyphema first because they had a vitreous hemorrhage and then it's possible to miss the macula, macula um, the, the retinal detachment if you're only paying attention to the front of the eye. Um, okay, so now that we have examined the patient and thought about our differential, we have to actually do something for them, right? Okay, if the, let's, let's start with this. If the pressure is normal, Andrew, what do you advise for hyphema patients? Uh, then you just watch them. 
see them again in a couple of days, make sure there's no rebleeding going on, tell them to be careful, tell them to sort of not bounce around too much. You know, Ben, like the whole um, customary teaching about like, try to tell your patients to take it easy. I don't know how much that really matters, honestly. Like it, it, it's what you have to tell them, but like there's so many pediatric cases that I've seen where it's impossible that the kid is actually staying put for a whole week or two weeks and they still do fine, right? Right. right. I mean, you can at least limit their like contact sports and stuff in PE. Like you could have like, you know, yes. at least like chill out in right. PE and stuff. So very good points. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the past, apparently they would confine everybody to inpatient hospital bed, bed restrictions. That's wow. the term I'm thinking of. Yeah. But uh, yeah. We are not such a burden on our inpatient costs anymore. Bed rest. What about eye shields? Do you advocate for wearing an eye shield? Sure. Um, I, I think eye shields are pretty practical. I, I, yeah. No, don't get me wrong. I advocate for all the standard things you should tell your patients. Uh, but eye shields, yes, very helpful because even if you don't have an eye rubber, there's no telling what even the most diligent and non-eye rubber will be doing when they're asleep. Yeah. I would definitely wear an eye shield. I'm a very bad eye rubber and I'm an eye doctor. Mm. What about head and bed elevation? Can't hurt. Do you advocate for that? Yeah. Yeah, can't hurt. At yeah. least it will uh, try, it'll help get the uh, red blood cells to settle down. And uh, once they collect at the bottom, then it could help again with their visual acuity. Just like another motivation besides their current vision is if they get one of the complications we'll talk about later, which is corneal blood staining. If you had to have corneal blood staining, you'd rather be in your inferior cornea so it's not like in your central vision. So, you know, these are reasons to keep people's head of bed elevated. Okay. So, again, if their pressure is normal, are there any drops that you generally suggest? So, the traditional teaching is that you get, should load them up with topical steroids and cycloplegics. Um, you know, we always thought that the cycloplegics were to prevent rebleeds, but there have apparently been studies done to saying that it doesn't really matter. Even so, it will still help keep your patient comfortable. And as a junior resident, I actually was a little confused on this point because people are saying, well, you know, I'm super light sensitive and what pills are, what, what drops are you going to give me? Like, oh, I'm just going to dilate your eye and make you even more light sensitive. But actually, it's not just the dilation that these cycloplegics are doing and actually remember dilating drops and cycloplegic actions are a little different it just happens that a lot of our drops do both at once but cycloplegia is really what you're after not necessarily dilation because you want to prevent the ciliary body from spasming too much and that's where their pain is going to be coming from whether or not they're light sensitive to begin with um, that will help it'll also help to you know dilating guy will help prevent any concurrent traumatic iritis that is probably there from having its usual sequelae of like posterior sinicae or peripheral anterior sinicae. Yeah, it helps calm down the pain too from traumatic iritis. Not immediately, but you know, may accelerate that. Yeah. Um, okay. And how often do you follow up with your hyphema patients? It's pretty frequent, honestly. One of the first things I tell a patient in the ER is you and I are going to become friends for a couple of days, for a couple of weeks. And it's the kind of, it's tough for a patient, especially these days in 2020 and the age of coronavirus to frequently come back to your teaching hospital, especially if they're from like a long ways away, but it needs to happen. 
primarily because you have to make sure that A, there's no rebleeding, and the risk for rebleeding is highest in the first week. And that's usually like three to seven days, right, Ben? Yeah, that's like the OCAP question that can come up is the uh, rebleed, rebleed risk is highest in three to, three to seven days. Yeah. And, you know, if they rebleed, it could really contribute to a big spike in intraocular pressure. And that's the thing you want to be careful of for these folks. Intraocular pressure is going to go up when there's hyphema because literally that trabecular meshwork drainage is being blocked, right? Like aqueous has a harder time getting through, you know, all the all the layers that it needs to when there's a whole lake of red blood cells that it's that are blocking it. A long time after the fact, you can get other problems with IOP derangements that are tangentially related, or they are related to the initial hyphema, things like ghost cell glaucoma, hemolytic glaucoma, and we can talk about those later. But really, um, they're not the same as this acute right during the actual presence of the blood for the first time during the hyphema itself. All just that obstruction, that trabecular meshwork obstruction can lead to a spike in intraocular pressure. So what do you do about it? I was going to ask you. I've talked for a long time. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, you do have to be careful because uh, depending on a couple factors, right, um, you want to lower the pressure if it's too high. But how high is too high? Like, in, Is that different for different folks, right? Um, there are some guidelines. And Ben, tell me what those guidelines are. <laughs> Well, there's guidelines for surgical management, right? So in the beginning, the default is to start with medical management to, to lower intraocular pressure. So, you know, drops, and then if you have to go to um, things like acetazolamide or methazolamide, then, um, th- you know, then use those assuming they have no contraindication. But if the pressure remains high when uncontrolled by that, then you have to consider, okay, when do we have to take this person to the operating room to wash out the blood? Because, you know, that's something that shouldn't be taken lightly. An AC washout, as the cool kids call it, is not like a trivial procedure that is like has no risk. Depending on which energy you put in the eye, you can have develop a cataract because of it. Uh, you, you know, you can cause injury. You can make a rebleed worse, et cetera, et cetera. So the uh, guidelines is if their intraocular pressure is greater than 60 for two days, you should take them. And, you know, it's quite a high pressure. If their pressure is higher than 35 for a week for seven days, then take them to the OR. And if their intraocular pressure is greater than 25 for one day in a sickle cell patient, then you should take them to. And that gets to a big thing that we should come back to, which is sickle cell. So if they don't have sickle cell, it's 60 for two days or 35 for seven days. I do not have a great mnemonic for that. That's something I would just commit to memory. Awesome. Okay. Now let's come, let's, let's, um, um, come back to sickle cell. Yes. Andrew, I know that you have strong feelings on this and I want you to, I want you to pontificate, but (laughs) let me lay out the basic thoughts and then you can go buck wild. So, okay. (laughs) So Ben Ben is talking about this because I did a rather controversial uh, grand rounds once as a resident on this it, case. It was one of the spicier grand rounds I've ever seen. So, and I'm totally on Andrew's side on it, actually. But <laughs> so, on the topic of sickle cell, 
so one, that's something that you should always at least think about in any hyphema patient, at least consider it. I know some institutions say independent of um, what you perceive their race to be, that you should test them for sickle cell because you don't know where the people's ancestry may come from. Um, other places, you know, go by by race. So what special, why do you have to think about it? So one is the traditional teaching has been that carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, which are one of our main intraocular pressure lowering medications, whether by drop or by pill, decreases pH, which can then precipitate sickling. Though I will say BCSE states directly that the literature does not actually provide any evidence for this. Oh, snap. Wait, which, which, uh, the glaucoma book actually, which year is this? My year's book. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Says that the literature does not. So, uh, Andrew, I don't know. Do you want to go ahead and pontificate a little bit or, or, I mean, it's up to you. So what you're going to talk about in a little bit then is, you know, why do red blood cells sickle in the anterior chamber? I'm going to jump ahead and actually kind of poach that topic from yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for um, it. Go for it. First of all, the anterior chamber, the aqueous um, in it has different, you know, it has a different whole makeup than just blood serum. This is a testable topic for sure. Like at some point in your ophthalmology testing career, somebody will ask you, what are some ionic concentration differences between blood serum and aqueous? Um, ben, right off the bat, uh, is, is there more or less bicarbonate in blood or aqueous? Blood. And this is um, relative to the other one, right? This is more yeah, right. sorry. Yeah. So... Um, You'll have you'll have a lower amount of bicarb. The reason being, and honestly, I always remember these two in conjunction. I mostly remember that ascorbic acid, vitamin C, is higher in the aqueous, and that's been proven in a lot of animal studies. And of course, you take any human study, any human aqueous, you test it, and yeah, there's a lot more ascorbic acid, a lot more vitamin C in aqueous. Ascorbic acid as an acid means that there's also a lot more protons floating around in there too. So hydrogen is also more prominent, more prevalent. It's of a higher concentration in the aqueous. And if you've got a generally more acidic environment in the aqueous, then you're going to have less bicarbonate by definition. So in the 50s around, there was a lot of literature from actually one of the great you know, pioneers of, opth- of ophthalmic lab research, Bernard Becker, who comes from St. Louis, I think, who's passed away now, but he did a ton of aqueous humor research. And I think one of the major things from his body of work is a lot of the initial work of diamox of acetazolamide came from his kind of understanding and playing around with it. Uh, His findings basically found that, you know, acetazolamide really seems to increase the acidity of, you know, certainly the body. There's metabolic acidosis, as you all will know if you don't already about how metabolic acidosis is a huge complication or a huge side effect of acetazolamide. It also does tend to show that, you know, the concern is that the aqueous humor will also find that there's more acidity there too, although I'm not sure that that's been demonstrated as much. What Dr. Becker really did show, red blood cells in sickle patients will sickle more often in the presence of higher concentrations of vitamin C. And so they're like, well, if uh, 
sickle folks have a higher propensity to sickle in a more acidic environment, then you should probably just avoid anything that could increase that acidic environment. Now, that was, I could not find any actual laboratory proof for like, you know, a challenge experiment of that, but honestly, nobody would ever do that. And there are situations sometimes when you need to introduce a topical carbonic anhydrase inhibitor or even mess around and play with acetazolamide for a little bit. But uh, the traditional thinking and the test question answer is going to be avoid carbonic anhydrase inhibitors in folks with sickle cell and hyphemas because you don't want to contribute or worsen that person's potential for a sickle cell um, sickling. Yeah, cool. That really... It's basically, uh, it comes down to nobody's got lab evidence showing this definitely happens, that uh, sickling is worse or in a more acidic environment. It's all sort of conjecture and it's not worth really trying to experiment on that. No IRB would ever approve that this in this day and age anyway. Yeah, but so it's kind of an absence of evidence. Yeah, just know that you're basically fighting against dogma more than evidence when someone says maybe we shouldn't use acetazolamide for this hyphema sickle cell patient. Gotcha. And then just along those lines, why do we have a lower threshold for IOP for surgical intervention for sicklers? You know, we said if their IP is only greater than 25 and you only give them one day in the sickle patient, then you should take them to the OR. The theoretical reason is that they're not going to get better because as Andrew discussed, there's a theoretical possibility that they'll have more sickling well, with hyphema in their anterior chamber because there's more ascorbic acid in it and has a theoretically lower pH, though the studies I looked at didn't really seem to bear that out. Some of them suggested it's a lower pH, but some also suggested it was the same as the serum. In any case, sickled blood cells in the trabecular mesh work, uh, in theory, will cause much more of a problem because they get jammed in there and they're stiff and they won't travel through the trabecular mesh work as well. So that's why... Sicklers have a tougher time with hyphemas. They should yeah. be more aggressive with them. You had a little neat thing, right, for the whole citric acid, ascorbic acid, citric acid in, is the, in the aqueous, right? Yeah. C is citrus, right? Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a great mnemonic, but um, to review that just one more time, the aqueous has higher concentrations of hydrogen, chloride, and ascorbic acid. So it's like HCl and ascorbic acid. And as we know, you, you know, like if you can think of like a citrusy fruit, it'll taste more acidic and we know it has a lot of vitamin C. So I just kind of try to remember that the AC is a citrus. Uh, that's not a great mnemonic, but you know, if you can think C for citrus, that may help you answer that test question. And that's compared to serum, which is higher, at least compared to the aqueous, has higher concentrations of bicarb, fat, and proteins, all of which are things that you would find in higher concentration in a milkshake. And we all know we wouldn't want our aqueous humor to be look like a milkshake because you wouldn't be able to see through it. So I kind of think, well, what what's in the aqueous humor is the opposite of what we'll put in the milkshake in terms of remembering what's low in the aqueous humor. Yeah, basically your eyeballs are really just little balloons of acid. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the vitreous humor is. I guess it is hyaluronic acid, but it's not that low of a pH. You know, it's not like a car battery <laughs> acid. Um, okay, last thing is 
blah, blah, blah. Okay, last thing is just covering a couple of complications to think about and to motivate your management of patients with hyphema. The big one we already mentioned is endothelial blood staining. This is a function of both time of hyphema MBI as well as pressure. So higher pressure will make blood staining happen more quickly. Um, this is bad because you know the cornea is stained and it can be it can definitely be visually significant. You know it may uh, end up requiring a, something like even like a corneal transplant, partial thickness, or otherwise. So uh, definitely, you, you can you definitely use this as a motivating factor in terms of whether you need to do a washout for someone. Yeah, a corneal blood stain is not permanent, thankfully, but it takes so long to go away, and it doesn't go away perfectly anyway. That that's why you might even be having to send it for a PK. So that's like Ben said, we really don't want to do that for folks when this is something really that could go away very easily before right. it gets to that point. Right. And sometimes if they've had a hyphema bad enough to cause blood staining, then they may have posterior segment pathology that may need treatment or evaluation for you to actually be able to see. And having all that blood staining in the way, even after the fact, after the hyphema is gone, can interfere with like a retina surgery or an exploratory surgery and whatnot. What if it happens in a little kid then, whether it's hyphema or blood staining? And say a two-year-old. Yeah, depending on the age, you have to be worried about amblyopia. You know, depending how long the blood is there, you know, um, visual obstruction can happen uh, very quickly. You know, in the course of it's uh, maybe not days but weeks. So, uh, you know, that's something that you have to monitor for and consider in terms of urgency of intervention. And are there? So, let's see if someone had hyphema, and then is there any point in following them after the hyphema has acutely resolved? Sure. I mean, you don't have to follow them daily. Uh, after a couple of weeks of making sure it's okay. But longer-term sequelae could involve, you know, you're, they're usually going to have some traumatic iritis from the injury, too, and we're assuming it's a trauma thing. Then you want to make sure that there's no developing synechia, either posterior synechia or peripheral anterior synechia, which is not as common, but still could happen. And uh, whether or not the angle, trabecular meshwork angle, seems to be clear or not, you could actually have angle recession, um, which is something that really predisposes to glaucoma, or it can. Funnily enough, it's not actually the recession itself that is the thought to be the etiologic driver of that. It's just that the recession is there, so there's probably uh, actual damage that you can't see to the trabecular meshwork itself. And down even further stream, down the line, this... Uh, the hyphema itself can lead to other forms of exotic glaucoma, like hemolytic and ghost cell, and we'll just talk about those another day. We did it. I hope everyone else was as hyped up about hyphemas as we were. If you liked what you heard, then you can follow us on Twitter at eyes for ears with number four. Uh, we also got our website, which I uh, in update basically as often as I say I update it. Sorry, <laughs> but it's oh, updated yeah. now. Yeah, uh, that's eyes for ears.com with a number four. And on the website, you also have a whole, um, you can sort through it by subject category too. And that includes the buddy call episodes and the beyond the scope episodes. Awesome. If you'd like to support the podcast and a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you found us is extremely helpful. And that's all we have for this week. We'll see you next time. Uh, bye. Bye. <laughs>